Well, if you could describe the local church using one word, what would it be? Just one word. Let me propose one word that we should use to describe the local church. Family. The local church, by God's grace, has been united as a family. You know, in the pages of the Bible, the New Testament, the church is described using that metaphor of a family, that those who've put their faith in Jesus Christ, who've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, have been united to God through faith and therefore united to other believers spiritually, brothers and sisters in the Lord, young and old, different backgrounds who've come together. And what we have in common is Jesus. We share in faith and, and worship in Him. You know, we've spent the last couple of, of months going through the book of First Thessalonians. If you're new with us, it, even though we're at the end of the letter, it's easy to jump in here today. We're just going to look at one passage at the end of the book of First Thessalonians. And in the last part of this letter, the Apostle Paul, he writes to the Thessalonian church, giving them instructions on how to relate to one another as a family, that their relationships are so important for their witness to a watching world about the love of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's why we use that word, brothers and sisters. That's why we see it here in the passage this morning. That we're to love our church like you love your family. Extending kindness and, and patience and forgiveness. You know, also viewing the local church as a family, that will change the way that you view your participation in it, Christian. You've heard us say this before. But it'll change your view. Don't, don't think of membership in the local church as joining a club that comes with certain amenities. Think of your membership in the local church as joining a family that comes with a set of responsibilities, privileges, honors, yet certainly responsibilities. And we're going to look at some of those responsibilities in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Why don't you go ahead, if you haven't already done so, turn with me there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. If you want to stay engaged with the sermon, the best way to do that is to open up a copy of God's Word. We've got Bibles right in front of you in the pew rack if you need that. Turn that, open up to page 988 in the pew Bible, 988. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 15. And, and every week we say this, if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, I want to invite you to use that Bible this morning and then take that Bible home with you. That's our, our gift to you. We'd love for you to read more of God's Word and even connect with someone around you or one of our pastors, any member here, to read God's Word with you. Let me read it right now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's the word of the Lord. Well, the final instructions we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, they contain timeless truth 
and timeless application to local churches everywhere. So we would do well as a church to consider these instructions this morning. Here in this passage, he instructs on how Christians should relate to their pastors and how Christians should relate to one another, to other members of their local church. And and the main idea that I want you to see this morning, what I want to persuade you of from this text this morning is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this main idea down. The peace and the health of the local church is every member's responsibility. The peace and the health of the local church is every member's responsibility. Paul's giving instructions here. He's giving instruction to the entire church. That's why you see in verse 12 and verse 14, brothers, which could also mean brothers and sisters. It just means church family. He's giving commands. But we're jumping at the very end of the letter where we see commands. So I want to be clear. The beginning of the letter, he's going through what God has already done in Jesus. So you can't take these commands and separate them from the gospel, from the good news of of Jesus. You need to know this morning, these commands are given to Christians right here. They're given to members of the local church, those who've already repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So, So before you can obey these commands that have to do with horizontal relationships with those around you, First, your relationship with God vertically has to be made right. The only way to be made right with God is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross and he he rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. If you would repent and put your trust in Jesus, you'll have your sins forgiven. You'll be made right vertically with the God who created you, who you've sinned against. And at that moment, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Upon that profession of faith, every member of this church has been baptized. And baptism also brings us into an actual local church body. So first, we must be reconciled to God. And then after you do that, you're reconciled to a second set of relationships, to other believers in a local church. So as we sit here this morning and consider these commands that have to do with horizontal relationships, Consider first and foremost the unity that you've been given with God if you put your faith in Jesus. And then after that, the responsibility that we have to live out of that unity and to relate well to other members of this local church. Well, as we make our way through this passage this morning, I want us to consider two family responsibilities. That's going to be the outline this morning, two family responsibilities. The first is in verses 12 and 13. Here's the first family responsibility. Lovingly respect your leaders. First family responsibility. Lovingly respect your leaders. At the end of verse 13, you see the instruction, be at peace among yourselves. And that command to be at peace among yourselves, meaning in the local church, that command sums up the greater picture that is packed into all four of these verses here. The church has been made a people of peace. Peace with God first, and then living out of that peace, peace with one another. Those who've come to know the peace of Christ through faith in Him must show the peace of Christ and how we respond to those around us. So all that we see in verses 12 through 15 
deals with how peace shapes our relationships in the local church. The first place that Paul begins in peaceful relationships of respect and honor is towards pastors, leaders of the local church. Now, in the New Testament, the, the term for leader is elder, which is interchangeable with pastor. So you'll hear me use them interchangeably this morning. That's the biblical office we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The qualifications there are given of those men who are qualified biblically and able to teach the Word of God to God's people. Elders, pastors, are to lead local churches. All of our pastors here at Oakhurst Baptist Church are elders, and all of our elders are pastors. It's interchangeable. Some are in the pay of the church, like me. Others, like Daniel Cox, who led our prayer this morning, not in the pay of the church. But we're all pastors, elders, seeking to shepherd and teach this local church. Now, the Apostle Paul in this passage is talking about how to relate to the elders or the pastors in your church here in verses 12 and 13. Look at how he describes the work of pastors in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, we'll look more at that work in just a moment, but let's first consider the way that you should relate to your pastors. It's summed up there in verse 12. Paul asks the church to respect their pastors, to honor their pastors. And the way you think about pastors, the way you speak to your pastors, the way you speak about your pastors, you are to show respect. It's a responsibility the Apostle Paul gives to the entire church. Now, somebody asked me recently, is this going to be awkward for you to preach this passage? I mean, a pastor up here telling you to respect me and the other pastors and to esteem us highly in love. And this is why I think expositional preaching is a good thing for us. If I was just thinking through a list of topics to come up here and share with you, it probably wouldn't be this. It wouldn't jump to the top of the list. But when we go through books of the Bible, the passage sets the agenda for what the sermon is. And here we see in the context of just how we're to live lovingly in the local church, the Apostle Paul thinks it's important that church knows how to relate to their pastors. In other words, God has spoken on relationships in the local church, and we would do well to consider what he's said in his word. So I don't want it to be awkward, and I don't plan to make it awkward. I want us to look at what God's word says and seek how we together can honor God with what he said in his word. Now, Paul wants them, the church there, to show respect and honor to their pastors. Now, we need to be clear on what honor means because we largely live in a society that has lost the concept of honor. Daniel did a wonderful job in the prayer of confession this morning talking about how far too often we are impacted by the world and the attitude of the world around us. From the day one, from day one, Genesis chapter three, there's been sin against authority. Viewing authority as a, a bad thing. And so, so we certainly are tempted toward that type of attitude and behavior, but also consider the world system. Uh, the world system is full of abuse of authority, full of rebellion against authority, and sometimes people can only think authority is a bad thing. Well, authority is a good thing because authority is a God thing, and we're called to consider that in the local church. I've heard it put like this as to what honor means. To honor means to esteem and treat another with respect because of who they are 
or what they've done. Honor has a sense of value attached to it. That which is valued and esteemed is honored. You know, the foundation for, for honoring others, again, first and foremost, is honoring God. So, so vertically, we are to honor God first and foremost. And then, as we look out horizontally, we're called to honor those around us according to the principles of God's Word. So, so children, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. It's a good thing. You honor them by obeying them, by having an attitude that would submit to their authority. Honor is a good thing because it's a God thing. Honoring governing authorities. Now, that's an attitude that's almost entirely lost. Just flip through social media, flip through cable news media. You certainly can disagree with governing authorities, but you're called to honor them. In fact, 1 Peter 2.17 goes on to say, honor everyone. If everyone's made in the image of God, then certainly we can treat everyone and relate to them with dignity and honor and respect that God's given them by creating them. And it is to be our ambition, as we read this morning, to outdo one another in showing honor. Simply put, when we honor others, we're honoring God. We're honoring Him and His authority. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You know, one picture of honor that, that left a mark on me was when I visited the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. I had a friend there, and he was in the United States Army, and he served as a guard there, which was an honor guard position. He invited me to come over one day and to, to have a, a private tour with him where he'd explain to me the history of everything. He'd let me see behind the scenes, his role, and explain to me. And I didn't know much about the tomb. I knew it was there, but I didn't know much like why, why are there guards there? I, I knew there was a changing of the guard. I wondered why, why did a tomb need to be defended by, by guards when he, he kind of let me in to what took place there. It was an honor guard position. And he explained to me that everything they did and the way they did it was to bring honor to unknown soldiers. So, so who was buried there? There were corpses buried there of real unknown soldiers. Uh, those who remained, their remains were unknown, unidentified, lost their lives in service to the United States of America in, in war. And he explained to me that every minute of every day, there's a guard there. Now, they started, they put guards there in the 1930s because there were no guards and people were doing disrespectful things like standing on the graves, walking over them. He even explained to me they were having picnic lunches out there as if that's a good place to have a picnic lunch. And he said, we wanted to make sure, the United States Army, that the unknown received honor. And so those honor guard there to defend the honor. So they always have a watch there. It's always guarded every minute of every day. He explained to me, even on 9-11, when the guards that were there could look across the way and see the Pentagon being attacked, they were given permission to retreat from their post, and they chose to stay. They chose to stay because that was a position of honor. Throughout the heat of the day, throughout cold winters, every minute, every day, they are there to defend the honor. He also showed me the, the preparation for that post. And so they have the cleanest uniform in the military. Nothing can be wrong with their uniform. In fact, he's explained to me 
on his off day, he spent about six hours preparing his uniform each day. No piece of lint on their coat. He showed me that their shoes had to be so shiny that they could look down and stick out their tongue and see the bead of their tongue from the reflection of that polished shoe. All of it to honor the ones that they were defending. Christian, all that we do must seek to honor God. We must take honoring God seriously every day, every minute of our lives. And if we do, we will also honor others. Well, why should you honor and respect your your pastors? Well, first and foremost, it's hearing God's word. It's obedience, so we know it, it honors him. But there is a purpose statement there at the end of verse 13. So, so God doesn't just say in these commands often, because I told you so. He actually gives us purpose clauses, which are really useful. There at the end of verse 13, it helps us understand why. Because of their work. It's not because pastors are more valuable than other Christians that you are to honor them. Respect them because of the work that they do. We read in verse 12, three aspects of the work of pastors. Paul describes their work in three ways. First, pastors are those who labor among you. That, that word for labor has the picture there to work hard. And Paul's emphasis here is not so much on all the work that is done, but rather that it is, it is hard work. Some people may wrongly think that pastors just work one day a week and wonder, is that even really a work day? I mean, you're here singing with us and it's not a picture of what pastoral ministry is. I can tell you in the eight years I've served here as a pastor and the 12 years total, it is some of the most joyful work I've done in my life and it is some of the most difficult work I've done in my life. And it's supposed to be. It's hard labor. So we see here, it's, it's laboring for the church. Now we find more descriptions of the hard work in other passages like 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Pastors work hard at preaching and teaching the Word, at studying God's Word and writing sermons and giving sermons and building up the teaching ministry of the church. Uh, additionally, pastors work hard at shepherding, counseling, visiting members, discipling, evangelizing, premarital counseling, weddings, funerals, benevolence needs in the local church. It's all the work that God has given for pastors to lead the way in. In other words, pastors devote themselves to working hard for the glory of God in their church. The work of ministry, it's, it's not easy. It's labor. It's not vacations. It's not rest. Rather, labor that involves physical, mental, and emotional labor. It's hard work. Well, pray for your pastors that we would labor faithfully and that God would give us strength to persevere in the work that he calls pastors to. A second aspect of the work of pastors, Paul says pastors are those who are over you in the Lord. Now, it sounds great if it's like, well, pastors are there to encourage you, but over you in the Lord, that language may make you uncomfortable. But this refers to spiritual authority God has placed in the local church of being an overseer. Again, that's what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the qualifications of an overseer, which is the same term as pastor or elder. The idea here is leading or directing God's people, that the Lord has given pastors authority to provide oversight and shepherding God's 
people. Now, to be clear, the church is not a dictatorship, but the church is also not a democracy. Elders work with the congregation to, to, to lead and to shepherd and to point the direction of the local church. Pastors serve under the authority of the chief shepherd Jesus and are to exercise oversight in the church according to the principles of his word. You know, Rachel read for us this morning from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 is a really helpful passage for us to know there the responsibility of pastors and the responsibility of church members. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Every pastor will give an account for the way they've led and taught and shepherded. That's a sobering thought. But the passage continues on, let, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Members of the church are, are to respect their pastors and to seek to make it a joy to lead you. It's part of the responsibility of members of the church. And finally, a third aspect we see here of the work of pastors, pastors are those charged to admonish you. Again, we see a teaching role, but admonishing is a certain type of teaching. To admonish is to warn the hearer of the importance of the teaching of God's Word and the consequences of disobeying God's Word. That means pastors will, will shepherd as they teach sound doctrine. Here's what God's Word says. So I, I pray God help me preach faithfully and, and, and clearly and to warn people away from sin and to defend against false teaching, to lead the way in that. Now, this laboring and overseeing and admonishing, it's all a part of the work of pastors. And all of that is a good thing for a local church. Uh, again, culture is all about suspicion of authority or thinking authority is a negative thing. But can you imagine families without authorities? Fam families without parents? Can you imagine schools without teachers and principals and authority? Can you imagine society without governing authorities, law and enforcement? Well, can you imagine churches without pastors? God's given pastors for His glory and for the good of the local church. And therefore, the work of pastors is a good thing for you spiritually. It's a good thing for your spiritual growth. And this very work given to pastors is what Paul grounds the treatment of respect and honor from congregation to their pastors. Now, the presence of this command, I think it implies that you may be tempted not to do that. And if you stay in one church long enough, inevitably, there will be decisions made or things said that you do not agree with. And trust me, I know that's not easy. But it's always your responsibility to deal in a way that is respectful. You know, one way to apply this is to think about even respectful disagreement. The commander doesn't say, well, respect your pastors if you agree with the decisions they make. It just says respect and, and honor them. God's word is infallible. Elder boards are not. We won't always get it right. And you can pray for us that when we don't get it right, that we would see that and humbly walk in repentance. But sometimes the decisions you disagree with are merely preference. 
There's several ways to do them, and you might prefer we do it this way, but we decide to go this way. Sometimes in your disagreement, if you knew what we knew, you may decide what we decided. So in leadership, you always know there's more to a picture or a situation than maybe you probably understand or need to know. Whatever the situation, you're called to respect, to submit to, to, to follow your pastors. One way to apply this is through respectful disagreement. Having criticism can be fair. Having a critical spirit is wrong. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing. It's fine to disagree with decisions that are made. But respect would lead you to disagree without being disagreeable. Respect seeks to ask questions and understand, not question motives or assign wrong or bad motives to your leaders. You should believe the best about your leaders, that even if we get it wrong, that our desire is that we got it right. And this respecting isn't just an external respecting of the rank or position. Look at verse 13, esteem them very highly in love. Esteem them means hold your pastors in high regard. This verse takes respect a step further to your heart. God cares about not just our actions or our words, but our hearts. And the attitude of our heart matters. Verse 13, esteem them very highly in love. Well, do you appreciate the work of pastoral ministry? If so, respect your pastors. Love them. Pray for us. Seek to encourage us as we seek to encourage you. One of the most encouraging things in this church is just when I get a simple text, hey, I'm praying for you. It could be I'm praying for your sermon prep. I shared up here a few weeks ago, just a hard week for me, losing my cousin, and someone wrote me a card and said they were praying for me. Something simple like that, just to know people care. Everyone needs to know that, including your pastors. The shape of the church is to be loving care from pastors to members and loving respect from members to pastors. A second responsibility of members of the church there in verses 14 and 15, patiently care for one another. Patiently care for one another. In verse 14, Paul is giving direction to the whole church, urging them to care for other Christians. Again, we see their brothers, verse 14, brothers and sisters, whole church. And he highlights three groups of people that he's urging them to love and to care for. The idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, which helps us know this. If you're here this morning and you're discouraged, you, you don't need to feel like that's wrong. If you're here this morning and you're physically weak, this has always been the case in local churches. In fact, Scripture has recorded for us how it is we are to care for people. If you're struggling spiritually and you're idle, praise God, there's a local church to come alongside you and to help you in that. Now, each of these groups in their church, they're in need of love, they're in need of care, and Paul gives direction on how to relate to these three groups. And notice he prescribes different actions, which means you have to be discerning. You don't relate the same way to these three different groups. That would be a mess. We'll see that in a moment. But these instructions help us know there is no room for passivity from members of the church with people in these situations. Notice that caring for other members of the local church, it's not merely the responsibility of the pastors of the church. The responsibility here is placed in the hands 
of the entire congregation, of the church as, as a whole. So pastors, elders should certainly be involved and leading the way as an example, but caring for members of the church is the responsibility of the entire church. The first instruction in the first group there in verse 14, admonish the idol. Admonish means to warn. And these members of the church that were idle, they were being disruptive. Now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we get a little more insight into this group and the, the church. Certain members, they were being idle, lazy. They weren't working, and it seems like they were taking advantage of wealthier members of the local church. This is a, a bad witness of the church. And Paul says that members of the church are to admonish, to correct, and to warn those that are disrupting fellowship with their idle behavior. Now, now Paul points to idle or lazy behavior as a problem that Christians should guard against. You can be idle in your work, not working very hard, or even when you go to work, not being faithful in the responsibilities you've been given to do. You could be idle at home, not being faithful of, of your responsibilities in the home as a husband or wife or parent. But also consider how some can become idle in their church membership. Spotty attendance, not giving financially to the local church, uh, not seeking to, to be relationally connected in a meaningful way as, as membership would point us to. You know, when, when we join this church, we sign a church covenant. Uh, we teach on that document in our membership class six times a year at our members' meeting, so, so just in two weeks. We'll plan to do that again, like recite this to remind one another of the commitments that we've made. And that's really useful because that gives us a picture of the opposite of idleness in church membership. Here's what we've committed to. Here's what's expected of everyone. And there, reviewing the church covenant, which I would recommend to review that, to pray through that, to ask God to help you do a better job in that church covenant, there you'll read commitments like this. We will work together to maintain a faithful evangelical ministry in this church. We will regularly assemble together to worship God and build each other up in Christ. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. Brother and sister, may we strengthen one another to live out those commitments. The second instruction there in verse 14 is to encourage the faint-hearted. If someone is faint-hearted, they're weary. They're tired. They're, they're in danger of losing heart and giving up. And God's given us a, a good gift in one another to encourage each other. Now, the situation with the Thessalonians, that may have been that some were faint-hearted because of persecution. They were facing persecution from following Jesus and maybe they were starting to ask the question, is this worth it? I'm losing my family members and my, my friends. I've lost my job for following Jesus. And they may have just been in a place that they were discouraged. Paul clearly doesn't want those members to slip through the cracks. And so he exhorts the whole church, seek to encourage other members. Now, it's important to know there will be times where you may grow faint-hearted from the trials of this life. There are. There are hard days and hard weeks, even hard seasons, where you will know sorrow, where you'll feel mentally and emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted. In this life, there will be times where our joy 
It will ebb and flow. There'll be times where our trust feels like on fire and radiant and intense. And there'll be times where our trust feels really low. And we feel overwhelmed. And we want to trust God's Word. And we know we can trust God's Word, but we might just be struggling spiritually. And God has given us a good gift in church family. You know, you know the worst decision you could make during that time is to isolate yourself and stop coming to church and not let anyone know what's going on in your life. This needs to be a place where people can come weak and share with others what's really going on in their life and seek prayer and help and care. And if that's you today, stop, stop by one of these doors and talk to our pastors after. We stay here and we pray with and for people after the service. I say this to my kids all the time, my teenagers. Hey, if, if I don't know what's going on in your life, if mom and I don't know what's going on in your life, we can't help you. Uh, we can't care for you. You know, you're teenagers now. Help us know what's going on. Help us know what you're, you're feeling. And it's the same thing in a local church. Help others around know what's going on. What are you struggling with? And watch how God will use the ministry of other believers in the local church to build you up. You know, the main way we encourage each other, it's with the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that we worship a Savior who's risen from the dead and He's reigning. And the gospel certainly is the beginning of the Christian life. So putting your faith in Jesus and His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, repenting of your sin, meaning turning away from your sin, and trusting in Jesus Christ, that's the beginning of the Christian life. But friends, the gospel continues to encourage us in our Christian growth because the gospel reminds us of sweet and precious promises found in Jesus. One of the most precious promises from Matthew chapter 28. I am with you always to the end of the age. One of the best ways we can encourage one another is to pray for others around us, pray with them, and encourage them. Christ is with you. What a friend we have in Jesus. He knows every hurt and pain. He knows the future. We don't. I don't know your future. I don't know when this trial will be over in your life. But Jesus does, and he's promised he's with you all the way to comfort you and to encourage you and to help you. Brother and sister in the Lord, one of our most important ministries is to encourage one another by pointing to hope found in Jesus. Finally, a third instruction in verse 14, help the weak. You know what's good news here? Church isn't just for the strong. It's for those who feel strong and those who feel all Christians who put their faith in Jesus. Now, there's different types of being weak. I think what's referenced here in verse 14 is actually physical weakness. I think it most likely refers to members of the church who are weak physically, sick, struggling with physical pain. There, there's much spiritual care that takes place in the local church, but don't overlook the practical care, the support, and the help that needs to be given. And helping means that you see others' difficulties and you move in to help. Society discards the weak. Society discards the elderly. It does. Society values people for what they can contribute and tends to see people when they're weak and older as not contributing anything and just kind of moving on to where there is health and what seems to be vibrancy. Societies forget about the weak. Churches must not. Churches must, must care. God cares about all of His people, and we must be caring too. 
I think this church does a good job of caring for those needs. I'm thankful for Roy and Lisa Britton and the way they serve us and being aware of those. If you're interested in hearing more about how you can help the weak in our congregation, talk to them. Deacons of member care, talk to them about how they can point you towards practical needs to serve. I'm regularly hearing of meals that are being made for people. I'm regularly hearing of, of people serving practically, mowing the lawn of Brian and Sarah Purvis and helping them out to mowing your own lawn and then taking a lawnmower over there to mow their lawn. By God's grace, I see this as a local church that sees needs and seeks to, to meet them. Let's pray that we persevere in extending help to the weak. Now notice the actions that Paul prescribes. They're fitting and they're appropriate for different situations. Imagine what a church would look like if you ministered in the wrong way to people in different situations. If you encouraged the idle and admonished the weak. Well, nobody's going to get built up by that. Encouraging the idle could just be overlooking it and not willing to speak lovingly into someone's life. Admonishing the weak would completely miss the moment and the opportunity to help those that are having a difficult time. Consider what other members are going through. Again, that's part of meaningful membership, that we know one another, we know what's going on in our lives. It's your responsibility to know others and to help others know what's going on in your life. And as we know, move in to minister. Finally, Paul instructs the church at the end of verse 14, be patient with them all. If you're patient, you have a long fuse. Steady. Waiting. Be patient with the idle. Be patient with the faint-hearted. Patiently help the weak. Be patient with them all. The good news about patience, it's a, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, patience is listed as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that is good news for Christians because many of us will be reminded of just how impatient we are the moment we get in our cars today and get out on Charlotte streets. It's easy to become impatient over silly things like drivers around us. But an important lesson is that those circumstances, they don't cause us to be impatient. Rather, those circumstances reveal impatience in our heart. Good news, God generously gives patience. Pray and ask the Spirit for help to be patient. Pray and ask the Spirit to, for help to be patient with people in the church. Be patient at home. Be patient in all of your relationships. Our church should be marked by this fruit of the Spirit of forbearing with one another, of long-suffering, of patiently persevering and loving one another and ministering to one another. What would our church look like if we grew in patience in our relationships with one another? God has been so patient with you, Christian. He has been patient. He is patient. He always will be patient with you. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And if we want to be like God, we must be patient and deal patiently with one another. Consider that, that one expression of patience is that you don't seek revenge. What we see here in verse 15 about not repaying evil for evil, that's an extension of patience. That's how it's connected there to verse 14. 
being slow to anger, not taking revenge. As if your plate wasn't already full enough with all of the responsibilities listed so far. If you didn't already think, wow, that, that's a lot to do and to give of myself. Here comes another instruction in verse 15 that might be the most challenging one to keep. It, it just is, if we're honest. Verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Don't pay back a wrong for a wrong. That is a worldly way to treat others. It says, if you love me, well, I'll love you. If you say something nice to me, I'll say something nice to you. If you offend me, I'm not saying anything nice to you. If you say something that upsets me, I'm done encouraging you. If you step on my toes, I'm done with you. You're dead to me. That's a worldly way of living and thinking and treating others. That is not to be the attitude amongst Christians. Well, how are we supposed to respond when someone sins against us, when someone offends us? At the end of verse 15, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I mean, no exceptions to one another, those in the church, and to everyone, those outside of the church who are not in Christ, believers and unbelievers, keep doing good. What does this look like? I think doing good, and really this word here of doing good, it's rooted in kindness. Kind thoughts, kind words, and kind actions. I remember years ago when I worked a summer job, I was on a summer project of college students, and we went into work at McDonald's. That's where we were working for the summer. And the local people there at Myrtle Beach, some of them weren't happy with college students coming in and working with them. And maybe even thought, who are these college students coming in to work with us? And I remember there was one particular employee, and she was being really rude to us and telling us, get out of my way. And uh, when we were over there at the French fry machine, which is kind of funny, over the French fry machine, kind of like nudging us out of the way, get out of the way, being rude. And uh, it was starting to bother me. And I remember one of my friends that was working with me, he, uh, he kind of got nudged out of the way, and he stepped back and he said, you know what? And he said this genuinely. He said, you know what? After you. And later that day, that employee came and apologized to all of us. I don't, I don't know that she was a Christian. But just that act of kindness, of not returning an insult for an insult or harsh treatment for harsh treatment, but extending kindness, it had an impact. Well, think about how that would look in, in your life, particularly as a member of a local church, to extend kindness to those around you. God's people must always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, Good works, they're a display for the love of God and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. Pray that God would give you patience to do good to those who wrong you or those who you feel like have wronged you. Well, the peace and the health of the local church is every member's responsibility. Well, it's a fair question to ask at the end of the sermon, Christian, member of Oakhurst Baptist Church, how are you doing with these responsibilities? How can you grow in them? How can you be more, more mindful of them? How can you be more, more faithful to God to seek to do a better job in the responsibilities that He's given you? The way that we are to relate to our church family and to everyone, the way we are to respond to those around us is the same way 
that God has responded to us in Jesus, in love, in grace, in mercy, in kindness, in forgiveness. Christian, every one of you at one time were an enemy of God. Your salvation this morning, simply put, is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He didn't die for those who were trying their best to try to please him. He died for his enemies. He died for sinners. He died for those who opposed him and his word and his will. He showed love and mercy and grace and kindness, saving us from his judgment and wrath and hell, if indeed we would repent of our sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ. Those who have, by God's grace, have come to know the peace of Christ must show the peace of Christ. And that display, it starts right here in our church family. Let's pray that we'll do that more. Let's pray that we'll do a better job. Let's pray for God's help. And let's do that now. Father, as we sung in the beginning of this service, our sins, they are many, but we rejoice that your mercy is more. And Lord, we ask as a church that you would shape us and form us by the mercy that you've shown us in Jesus. Lord, we pray you'd help us to consider more and more what it looks like to please you and to honor you, and therefore to show honor as is fitting in the relationships around us. And help us as a local church. God, to guard the the peace and the unity that you've already given us in Jesus, to be eager to maintain that, to understand that every word and thought and action has the opportunity to either honor you or dishonor you. And Lord, may you grow us as a people of praise that seek more and more to honor you. Lord, we pray you'd remind us of the help that we have in your Holy Spirit, who fills us with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and we ask you to do that all the more in Jesus' name. Amen.